Mike, can we, uh, what's your estimate of when we can get out of there as the main military force? I, I think talking about when you can get out is an absolute mistake. Within you never this room. talk about Within it. This room. Yeah, right. 100,000 of my closest. <laughs> look, 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 the key to all this, the key to all this is there are two or three things that have to happen. At some point, you have to let the bicycle go, and the Iraqi security forces have to take responsibility for the major portion of the engagement. The second thing that has to happen, and we see the seeds of it happening today, is there has to be a meaningful inclusion of the Sunni minority in the political process. They saw an election go by. They understand they didn't play. They want to be in on the drafting of the Constitution. And at some point, what has to happen is Iraqis have to take charge of their own country. If you talk about it, until you deal with this fellow Zarqawi in an insurgency which is domestically based, you know, you really can't go down that road. But the face, the American face kicking the door down is not an image you can sustain forever. Okay, the, the, when I, I want to go to the questions right this. I watched the Middle East, and we've been watching the Middle East since we were kids, and it's always been a problem. Right. And you've got Israel there, which is bothersome, uh, let's put it lightly to the Arab, Arabs around them. Right. If you look at the new Arab leaders, yeah. Sif Gaddafi coming along, you've got Mubarak's kid coming along, you've got King Abdullah already there, you've got Bashir, uh, Assad, are that, is the new Western-educated leadership of the Arab world going to be any better for us, or are they going to be driven around by their uncles and the old crowd? Well, complicated question. Let me, just, let me just back up two steps. If you take a look at the Arab and Muslim world today, we've got a couple of things going on that are really important. The population of the Arab and Muslim world is exploding around us. Let me give you some facts, and I'll get to your question. 75% of the Saudi population is under the age of 15. Unemployment runs at about 26%. They have no place to go. A million Iranians come to the workforce every year and are only jobs for half of them. There are unemployment in the Persian Gulf runs at about 40%. They're adding a million people to their workforce every year and will do so between the year now and 2015 and they have no place to go. These are societies that essentially there's no economic opportunity. They're not part of the globalized world. Their educational systems are badly in need of reform, and their governments have lost, have broken faith with their people. Now, these are also governments, if you look at them, are based on old gerontocracies and family structures that must change. If you look at King Abdullah in Jordan, he is the model for the next generation of Arab leaders. He's got a free trade agreement with the United States. He's opening up his universities. He's got a political process that's becoming more inclusive. If you look at what's going on in the Middle East today, look at the ferment from Syria to Lebanon to Afghanistan. The Palestinians had a peaceful transition and an election. Now, Tom Friedman says it's ironic, it's ironic when other Arabs look at it, that the two occupied countries, Iraq and Palestine, had elections. And the rest of the Arab, and this is now visually Al Jazeera, Al Arabiya, every medium in the Middle East is now putting this in the living room of Arab publics, and they stand up and say, wait a minute, I want better for us too. It is inevitable that we're gonna, there's going to be change. I think we have to watch our rhetoric. You know, Jeffersonian democracy, and let's, 
Look, I'm all for it. Reform, democracy, it's going to happen in each of these societies in a different way with cultural values that are uniquely their own. We need to, mo we need to move them in this direction. But there is, someone said, it's not the Western liberals who's going to defeat Al-Qaeda's ideology. It is the liberals in the Islamic world, and they are stronger today than they ever have been. How you manage this, and I don't think the United States can manage it. I think this is a uniquely cultural internal event. But if you look at a guy like Bashar, Bashar has never stood up and met his responsibilities. He's basically surrounded by his father's cronies, although he's made substantial changes in the bureaucracy around him. Bashar's still living in, in the 19th century. He's a minority government in Syria, and Syria is as backward as it gets. So I think what we need to do, when, when you see an Abdullah, or you see the king of Morocco, or you see a young leader emerge, you've got to make him succeed very, very quickly and use all the means at our disposal to help so that Arabs look at role models and say, there's another way to do this. Are you optimistic about the Arab world and its new generation? I, I, am, I am optimistic. I am optimistic because if you look at their talent, and you look at their education, and you look at their, I am optimistic. I think they want something better. And I think that's the other thing. Optimism is a hell of a lot better than cynicism. I think we have to be more optimistic. We have to be more inclusive. And we have to listen a lot more than we do and help these folks along. And recognize, if you're an American, it's not going to develop exactly the way you think it is. You better put on your seatbelt, because there's going to be plenty of instability along the way. First question. American University in Cairo. Um, my first was a comment. Um, when you said that the um, problem was perhaps linguistic and the kind of language that was used at the point of um, discussing the weapons of mass destruction, yeah. um, I was just wondering if you can comment on this. I think fundamentally it's more of a problem with the idea of a preemptive war and what that can achieve. Um, and secondly, Okay, let's stop there before you go okay. second. I was the director of central intelligence, not the policymaker. I'm talking about what I wrote. The policy choices they make okay. are not mine. They're theirs. So it's, it's a policy issue about the use of preemption. It's something we're going to have to think through based on this experience. There is no American president in history that's ever foreclosed the option of acting in your own national interest. Preemption is an interesting subject that we have to talk about, but it, it, it had nothing to do with how we wrote what we wrote, okay? It's their decision-making process, not, not, not the intelligence decision-making process. Okay, I understand that. And my second point was, um, when you use Iraq's elections as an example, yeah. I'm just wondering, it perhaps is ironic that they're the country having elections, but how successful do you see those elections being in the future, well, in terms of how the situation stands now? Well, as I read the situation, um, you now have the Sunnis forming an umbrella party because they want to participate in the political process. The Kurds and Shias participated in pretty large numbers given the security situation. I mean, it was startling. I don't think anybody would have predicted that you would have had the turnout that you had in Iraq on that day. In the face of the violence they experienced, what the Iraqi people seem to be saying, we're taking our country back. Very powerful message to the world. Now, Sustainability, where does the process go? How do the Kurds, the Shias, and the Sunnis? Well, you know what? When I read the papers, it sounds like it's Chicago a little bit. Everybody's in the black room doing deals. They want to play. It's a good thing, not a bad thing. Thank you. 
Hi, um, my name is Bilal Siddiqui. I'm uh, researching in at a think tank in Washington, D.C. Um, Which think tank? It's called the Center for Global Development. Thank you. Kind of uh, the new. My work for the tank. CIA, for all I know. You know, you got to. Try and get, try and get the old boss while he's down. You know. <laughs> By the way, is that one of yours? No. <laughs> It's not like Air America or something like that. Yeah, thanks, yeah, right. Okay. Um, my, my we question, own CNBC too, but I'll tell you that later. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, my question is simply, uh, it, takes, it takes off from the statement that you made early on in your speech, which was um, inspirational, but I also thought a little um, sketchy. Um, <laughs> well, it would have gone on longer, but, you know, <laughs> go ahead. No, no, no. The, speech, the speech was great. The statement was, uh, imagination is often more important than knowledge. Yeah. Um, and I found myself thinking that, um, given your job. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you're, allow you're allowed to take a shot. <laughs> But someday you'll actually run something, and then you'll sit in my chair, and someone will say the same thing to you, and you'll want to get up and strangle you. But go ahead. <laughs> but please go ahead. We love each other. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm, just, I'm, I'm really glad you're not sitting in that chair right now, actually. Go ahead. Um, I was just thinking that, um, I mean, you made, you made a, the very assertive point right now that there was no. Um, political pressure whatsoever to have intelligence uh, give the kind of report, the kind of language, and so on and so forth. And whereas, I mean, I, I completely, I have no knowledge uh, about that. I'm just curious to know why it is that an, at an, on a number of, any number of occasions, intelligence um, reporting does seem to, at some level, go hand-in-hand uh, hand with the political agenda of a regime. We saw this, you know, we've seen this in, uh, in ages ago in even the Gulf and Tompkin, but now, we saw this with uh, the Bush regime, Bush regime's political agenda and the kind of material that was coming out of intelligence. Hold on, stop, stop, yeah. stop. I will tell you something. I categorically reject that at any point during my tenure as DCI, we shaped intelligence for either the Clinton administration or the Bush administration. The men and women who worked for me, if there was the hint that somebody was trying to tell them what to say culturally would walk out the door in mass and show up in his studio to tell him the story. It is not our culture. How politicians take data and interpret data and assess risk is theirs, but that's not our culture. And the sad thing that's been left in the public domain is as we sat around trying to think about what they wanted to hear and then wrote it, it didn't happen. Nor did the Congress, nor did the committees of the Congress in their elaborate investigation find that it happened, nor will it ever happen. You know, you were probably in grade school and Bob Gates' confirmation hearing took place, and analysts came out of the woodwork in droves to say they had been pressured and manipulated. I'm telling you, it wouldn't work in the culture that we breed. Our integrity is the only thing that we have. When you breach it, you're finished as a professional intelligence officer. If I had a nickel, for every article I briefed in the morning that policymakers didn't want to hear, I'd be a rich man right now. That's not my job to please them. I don't care about their politics, their political party, their elections, or anything else. And I sure as shit wouldn't be sitting here with a rack and WMD saddled around our neck for the rest of our lives 
because we wrote something that we didn't believe was intellectually honest. Here's the difference. We actually believe what we wrote. It's, you know, you make judgments. We believed our judgment. Uh, during dinner, I was actually um, talking to a delegate from the White House saying, which one is actually better for the Arab world? And I don't know whether you would agree with me that it's a difficult choice to, see, to say whether you know, a king would be better or a president would be better given, um, given how we live or our cultures or, so just your comments of which one is better. I can't, you know, as an American, I shouldn't make that judgment for you. It's not my judgment to make. Mm -hmm. You have to tell me what you think is better. Well, it will depend. If I'm standing here in front of you, I would say the monarchy is better. And I have, no. you can argue both no, ways. No, no, I, under I, under I understand this. I'm, I understand this. I, I, can, I, I think it is the height of arrogance for us to presume to tell the people of any country which is better. Great. I like that. Thank you. Colin Powell, said to me, <laughs> Colin Powell said to me that they're all monarchies anyway because they all call each other Bathists or, or mullahs or whatever. They all want their, their oldest son to replace them. Right. But it, I mean, it always ends up that way. Mubarak, Abdullah, uh, King Abdullah, Husseins, you go to Sif Gaddafi, you go to Mohammed VI. What's yeah. the difference? They all want their oldest son to be the next president. Yeah, except in the year like two. Like here in this country. In, in, <laughs> I, I, I don't. I, I just don't think that in the year 2005 that theory is sustainable anymore. I think, I think the pressures and the openness and the ferment in these societies, I just don't think you can sustain that automatically, Chris. Next up. My name is Arpit Malvi. I'm studying electrical engineering in Stanford University. First of all, I would like to thank both of you to be here today. My question is about Libya. And I would like to know what was the process like to convince Colonel Gaddafi oh to uh, yeah. give up, at least to convince him to loosen control and also why we are not able to do the same, why we fail to do the same in Iraq, and why we are not able to do the same in North Korea. Thank you well, so much. Well, it's interesting. Gaddafi actually, uh, this is something I'll write about someday. You know, about 18, 19 months ago, he woke up one morning and he decided, for his own internal reasons, life as a pariah state was no fun anymore. So who did he call? He didn't call Michael Moore, he called me. <laughs> called the British Secret Intelligence Service, and we got into a negotiation with them over nine months. And one of the reasons the negotiations succeeded is, is we continually startled them with their knowledge of their programs. They, they, you know, they'd say, oh, we know this much, and we said, no, 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 here's what you got. And in the middle of the negotiations, we took a ship off the high seas with centrifuges destined for Libya, took them off the boat, and showed up and said, by the way, now we have your nuclear program penetrated. What do you want to do here? We're ready. You, you're not telling. So, Basically, it was clandestine, it was secret. One of my best officers, one of the best British intelligence officers led the negotiations, and we, over nine months, made very steady progress, and a country was disarmed because of our knowledge. Gaddafi, you know, Gaddafi's, you know, you know I would say, euphemistically, he's a very interesting guy, okay? <laughs> Why did he do it? I don't, you know, one, he, ha he has an Islamic problem in his own country. Two. His kids aren't getting educated anymore. Three, his oil industry is in arrears. Four, he saw 135,000 guys sitting in Iraq and he's wondering whether he was next. Some complex of these issues made him believe, I gotta get out of this and get into the modern world because I'm not gonna survive. This is how I, this is my supposition. Now, 
why don't you convince, why don't you convince a guy like, well, because a guy like Kim Jong-il, he's got the missiles and the nukes. And he thinks his strategy is different. Each one of these guys has a different sense of their vulnerability and a different sense of what they think plays. One size doesn't fit all. Next. Over there. My name is Hashem Debas from Jordan, and I go to MIT. I have two quick points. First, I wanted to ask you if you could comment about the, um, let's say, authenticity of the Photoshop images Colin Powell presented to the UN. And, We're authentic. Uh, and the second, the second question was, you're talking about um, the issues of reform in the Middle East, and I'm wondering whether, you know, what, what a position leaders have to, you know, are put in or, or what roles they should play when um, the people of these countries don't, don't accept this reform because they feel that it's um, coming from international pressure as opposed to being, ah. be, it, be it, you know, this ah. reform is, is uh, positive or negative for the country. They don't want it yeah. because... Well, it's, a, it's a very, it's an excellent point. If people believe this is, this is an ex exogenously, if this is directed from someplace, I want you to think about any American, would we do something because someone else told us to do it? The answer is hell no, we wouldn't do it. These are, these are issues that have to emerge from within. Well, all we can do is, is, is insist that those voices be heard and let them take their natural course. You do have an obligation to do that. But the notion that you, you, if you propagate and lead people to believe that the only reason this is happening is because you told them to do it, it'll kill it dead in its tracks. You gotta stand away from it. Yes, you have to nurture it. Yes, you have to encourage it, but you have to let it develop quite naturally on its own, and you have to let people inside these countries take responsibility. Is Ukraine the model for that? Well, Ukraine is certainly one model that other countries have looked at. All the Arab countries saw what happened in the Ukraine. They watched what happened in Kyrgyzstan. Everybody's watching this real time. 20 years ago, we couldn't see this real time. This is now in everybody's living room. So people see that when things go awry, I mean, you know, in, in the Ukraine, they tried to steal the election. People stood up and said, you can't steal it. And they won. Imagine the empowering effect that has on people in countries who say, my goodness. They didn't roll out the military. They didn't have a crackdown. You know why? Because the whole world is watching. Everybody is now watching. It's different than it once was. So, um, well, we look at what's happening in Iraq and everything. But if we take a step back, we, we remember Twin Towers just down here, what happened there. Now my question to you is, where in the world is Osama bin Laden? We still haven't smoked him out of a cave. Is he in a beach, on the beach in Durban in yeah. South Africa? Yeah. Where See, is he? Yeah, well, I wouldn't tell you uh, <laughs> in any event. But here's, here's, what you, here's what you need to understand about this. If you look at what's happened since 9-11, three-quarters of the al-Qaeda leadership structure, that once, the central management structure that once existed no longer operates. The plan is to strip away all that senior operational talent and create a vacuum between him and them. And out of this strategy, we will get a break. I know how we're going to catch him. I can tell you the scenario. I wish everybody would just shut up about him long enough <laughs> to give us a chance to do our job. Remember Panama? We chased Noriega around a country that we owned for five days and couldn't find him. Circumstances. But the point is. The guy's six foot eight. Yeah. That's tall for the Arab world. Yeah, right. He's riding a burrow and he's on dialysis. So why was he so hard to track? Yeah. You know, I have to tell you, I have to tell you, I love these guys. I love these guys a lot. They couldn't find them with both hands on their best day. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. You all think this, it's not funny, 
This is the hardest work we do, tracking people, running people down systematically, breaking up the cells we've broken up around the world. has been enormous success because of knowledge and target and, and a big worldwide coalition. Uh, there will come a day when we get this guy. There's an enormous amount of effort. He's got some advantages. They're not, they're not advantages that will last him forever. Patience is the key here. And this is something we take extremely seriously. And uh, while it's the butt of jokes, someday you'll be reading about it in the paper and you'll be thanking us. Let's try to finish up. Everybody standing. Next to no, That's um, it. Sean Campbell from Oxford University. And um, my question is about North Korea. Uh, and I think, you know, your point about not wanting to reward Kim Jong-il for cheating, you know, is really well taken. But also, I mean, just from the perspective of a layman reading the papers, the scary thing seems to be that we don't also really have the capacity to punish him for cheating. How would you um, want to punish him? Well, I mean, that's actually my question to you, is like how you think that, I know you're not a policymaker, but how listen, you think Listen to me, listen to me. I, I'd say a couple of things to you guys. First of all, there are two countries on the table, Iran and North Korea, where people are running around thinking about punishing people, right? I want to tell you something. As someone who led people for the last nine years, the American military and the American intelligence community is tired. There is nobody who's sitting in the locker room who hasn't played at least 10 innings of a baseball game, either in Afghanistan or Iraq. And I would argue that what we need to do now is rely on diplomacy, rely on our international allies, use the UN, use the six-party talks, and patiently bring an entire community with us to get to an outcome and stop talking about, you know, naturally we have to hold all our options. Naturally, a president reserves the options to do things, but this is a moment in time where patience is required and we need everybody else in this game with us, and the instruments of our power need a break. So I think everybody needs to calm down a little bit. Hi, I'm Amy Wilkinson, White House Fellow. My question is, looking forward, how can we continue to improve our intelligence capacity? Not and with the law that was passed. I'll tell you that. And specifically, how can we uh, <laughs> That's a reach a thought there. Let me, let him, what did you mean? What, what we've essentially done is, is we've basically created another huge layer of bureaucracy. You have taken the leader of American intelligence and taken him away from line management of troops, people who run covert action, clandestine operations, all source analysis. We're and John Negroponte is a great man, and I love him. So we're now going to give John 1,000 people. These 1,000 people are going to have to go get informed about what the other thousands of people are doing. And we have, we have created the myth on terrorism that in the 21st century, structure is what matters and not data. We've put a wire diagram in place that rearranges the power relationships in Washington and led everybody to believe that that's going to help us catch terrorists. There is nobody in Washington, D.C. who has ever caught a terrorist in their entire life. <laughs> okay? And, that's, and now, we've, now we've got this layer. And I'll tell you something. They're going to come back. And what happened here is the 9-11 Commission hid this neat diagram on page 328. The Kerry campaign said, let's take it. The Bush guy said, we better take it because they said take it. And then something happened. The law passed. And then they said, oh my god, what do we do? Well, we've got to now enact this thing. The DNI has, I would argue, has no more authority than I do. We didn't give them all of the budgets of the agencies. We didn't give them hire and fire authority. We didn't do any of those things. We've created another layer. The key about, the key this is speed, agility, and data. And in the domestic construct, in the year 2005, 
The solution is a digital database that allows our country to be wired together so that information flows. Right. That's the solution. It, the other part of my question is how do we reach across international borders and encourage others to help wow. us? But we've built an enormous international coalition. Virtually every Arab and Muslim country is on our side. People say to me, what do you think about the French, Mr. Director? And then they snicker, snicker, snicker. They're, the French are about one of our best counterterrorism allies. They understand North Africa and terrorism better than anybody in the world because they live through Algeria. So there's a huge coalition out there that we've built patiently over 30 years in the intelligence channel. It's on our side. That's why we're winning. Great. We're getting the hook now. I'm sorry. One more question is all we got. Um, you, my name is Olka Hansen. I'm a Marshall Scholar at Oxford. Um, you've mentioned a couple of times that the CIA and, and the people who work under you don't have a political agenda in making their reports. But I think politicians and policymakers will use those reports in ways that kind of fit their ends. To what extent do you think you and others in the intelligence community have a responsibility to stand up and not let yourselves be used in that yeah. way? And how do you right. think we stop potential retribution like what happened to Valerie Plume? Well, look, look here, here's what I need to tell you. I mean, you know, the same question was asked to me in, in congressional testimony. Well, can you please tell us every time you told the president and the vice president to not do something? The answer is no, I'm not going to tell you. But you have to understand I'm not a wallflower, and we didn't sit around and say, oh, yeah, it's okay to say this and okay to say that. At the end of the day, I've worked in two parties, worked on two sides of the aisle, worked for the Democrats. Where there is gambling in this casino. There is no set of policymakers that never tried to take a little bit of data and move it in their day. And all we can do is, in the confines of our interactions, which I believe in this world should be discreet and private, state our position as forcefully as we know how, and we did. Now, did I, did I clear every speech that everybody, you know, when they on meet the press or on your, no. They're responsible adults. We don't do this every day. I can't Are spend they? my I can't spend my time. I can't spend my time watching every statement everybody makes. I wouldn't be I wouldn't be doing my job. But that we did our job, that we carefully evaluated what should be said or not said, yeah, we did our job. Perfectly, probably not. Evaluate it. History will evaluate all this in, in its proper construct. Last question I want to put to you. You've got in this room incredible people. I met them yeah. last night. The linguistic ability, the cross-cultural skills yeah. are so good you can't tell where people are from. Right. I mean, it's unbelievable. I was getting confused last night. Uh, who's this fellow, Constantine? Are you here? Where's Constantine? This guy's unbelievable. He's been in the country seven years. He talks like an American. He talks better than, than yeah. you do, actually. Um, <laughs> it's not hard. It's not hard. It's Should not these hard. guys become, and women think about becoming agents? I mean, uh, uh, so they, first, let me, let me, let me. I mean, I'm serious. These are, this is the talent pool. Okay, okay. Genius listen, and cross-cultural skills. Should they become spies? No. Listen, listen. To me. Yeah, listen. Listen, what I said at the outset, what it said at the outset, it's, it's not a life for everybody, okay? What I said at the outset is to serve in some capacity. Serve. I don't care where you serve. We need your talent and your brains. I'd love for half of you, if you're Americans, to come to the back of the room later and we'll sort of do some deal making about your futures. But, and we need the highest quality people. But the, 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 what you need to remember is that serve something. Serve the UN. Be a teacher. Be a missionary. Be a relief worker. Join the military. Be an intelligence officer. You have such enormous skills and credentials in your bios. If, if it's about getting rich, go, go get rich. It's great. You'll be as boring as hell, even with all your money, okay? Because nobody tells better stories than public servants tell about the experiences they had in their lives. 
And nobody feels better about what you did to impact humanity than we do. Sometimes for the good, sometimes for the bad. We make mistakes, but I can tell you, you get up every morning, you go to work, and you're just charged up about the fact that you have a chance to do something good today. Nobody can give you that if you're not serving. So, you know, everybody who wants to work for the CIA, I'll see you downstairs at noon, we'll take a little ride. Otherwise, <laughs> Bravo. thank you. Thank you.